Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you today. Glad you guys are joining us. Um, if you did not open your Bibles already to Luke chapter 9, uh, I just want to invite you to do that. So we're hanging out this morning, and you want to keep your eyes on those pages as we work through this incredible passage this morning. Uh, we have one more passage in the Gospel of Luke that we're looking at next week, and then uh, we're going to take a break for a season of Advent um, as we're going to actually look at the last two chapters in the book of Revelation as we look at the second Advent of Jesus. I think it'll be a really uh, powerful time to do that together, and uh, I had no idea when I was planning that to do that in this last January that 2020 would be what it is. So uh, we have an incredible time to look at those last two chapters and fixate our hope on Jesus. So, um, but today... We're in Luke 9. Um, maybe you've heard it said that we live in a post-truth world. Maybe you've heard it said that way before. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, that term means literally the term post-truth means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So simply put, we now live in a culture that seems to value experience and emotion over truth, and so that determines what is true. Uh, the most important truth I think that you and I can wrestle with, uh, I propose to you this morning, is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And, and that's not a relative question. That's not a relative question. And, and it's not answered merely on your, based upon your own experience. And it's not answered merely based upon your own emotions. It's a a question that you must wrestle with, though. See, people might redefine Jesus uh, to better suit themselves, or you might keep with you the parts of Jesus that you really like about Him and kind of toss aside the other parts that, that kind of trouble you a bit. But the moment that we do that, we no longer are loving Jesus. We love some sort of idol that we fashioned and named Jesus. I mean, I know you, you don't know me that well yet. Maybe I've been here for a little over a year now. Um, but if you imagine if somebody came up to you and said, hey, do you know Josh? And you said, yeah, I know Josh. He's, he's five foot four, volleyball player. He's really gifted watercolor painter. Um, and uh, he plays the saxophone like a boss, you know. Um, you might have gotten my name right, but that's, that's all you got right. Right? That could be your image of me, but I'm sorry, that, that's not who I am. That's a much cooler version of me, to be sure, but, but that's not who I am. You just got my name right, right? See, guys, Jesus isn't who we make him out to be. He, he's not who we dream up he is, right? He is who he says he is. And this morning, we come to a passage that isn't an actual, like, cushy, easy passage. It isn't a passage that says, here's ten ways to become a better you. Right? Our passage holds up to us a telescope, if you will, to behold the glory of Jesus. Right? And we see that He's the one that you've been waiting for, that we should follow Him, that we should listen to Him, and we see that, in fact, it will be really costly in order to do that, but it'll be worth it. And so, what we really see here is that we get a testimony from the disciples as to who Jesus is. We also get a testimony from Jesus as to who He is, and we get a testimony from the Father regarding who Jesus is. And so, this is what I want us to see this morning in verses 18 through 20. We, we see the identity of Jesus that's revealed to the disciples and shared with us. 
And then in verses uh, 21 through 27, we see the mission of Jesus and the implications that has on our lives. And that third thing that we see this morning as we look at the Mount of Transfiguration in verses 28 through 36 is we see the glory of Jesus. So we see the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the glory of Jesus. So let's look at the, glory, the identity of Jesus in verse 18 through 20. It says in verse 18, Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So in verse 18, Jesus is said here to be alone. He's praying with his disciples. And for Luke, indicating that Jesus is praying is actually a really significant thing that Luke does. He does it seven times in his gospel. And basically, every time you see Luke point out that Jesus is praying, we should sort of scoot to the edge of our seats. Because every single time something profound is revealed or something amazing happens. And so we kind of scoot forward here and we see this. And if you were here with us last week, we saw that in the passage right before this that we see these, these crowds. We saw last week that Jesus had sent out the 12 apostles or 12 disciples, as they're known there, and, and they did all this ministry. They proclaimed the gospel. They healed people, and they returned, and this crowd had gathered in, in following Jesus. And so Jesus taught the crowds, and he fed them miraculously, upwards of almost 20,000 people when you include women and children. And so we see this crowd that these disciples had just seen miraculously fed. And so Jesus is praying, and he has this question, right? And it's a question that we saw Herod ask up in verses 7 through 9 last week. It's kind of a parallel answer as well. His question is, who do the crowds say that I am? If those people just miraculously were fed, you, who, what are they saying about me? Who do the crowds say that I am? Who am I according to the crowd? And the following estimations are given in verses 19 through 20. And it indicates that the crowd misunderstands who Jesus is. Right? Some in the crowd say John the Baptist. Right? Others say maybe you're Elijah reincarnate. Right? Others say maybe one of the prophets of old has come back to life. Right? But do the, the crowds do not think Jesus is the Messiah. Right? That's not what it would seem here. And that kind of makes a little bit of sense based upon your, our understanding of what Jews thought the Messiah would do, what they expected from the Messiah. See, the people in the streets, they longed for revolution. They longed for an exodus. They longed for a war, a Messiah that would lead an assault on the Roman Empire and ultimately free them back to their glory days, right? And it may be this expectation that the explains the crowd's estimation of Jesus. They're saying, he's a great man, or he's, he's even a prophet, right? Maybe even Elijah, but, but not the Messiah, because the Messiah is a revolutionary. He, he's the one who's going to come in and defeat the Romans, right? But what the crowds failed to grasp is that he had been reshaping their understanding of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah was going to do all along. Jesus knew that the Romans weren't the real problem, right? The problem was with us. He knew that the line of good and evil wasn't drawn between the Jews and the Romans. It's drawn down every line of our human heart, right? What we must see is that these identities attributed to Jesus, they would have actually been high compliments of Jesus, wouldn't they? I mean, this is kind of complimentary in the crowds of the eyes, but they miss the mark. They fall very short, don't they? A handful of years ago, Joshua Bell, who's 
I think, the most accomplished violinist maybe in the world, right, at least in America. He's, he's had a career that spanned four decades. He's an incredible uh, conductor even and violinist. And a handful of years ago, he went down into the subways of Washington, D.C., and for free just set up shop and played a 45-minute um, concert of his own in the subway, okay, just for free, unannounced, went down and played, people videoed this, that kind of thing. It's incredible to watch because people are just passing him by, right? We don't know what they're thinking, right? Maybe they're like, oh, that's beautiful, but I got places to go. I got people to see. I have things to do, right? And they're just moving on, just another person playing an instrument in the subways. Only seven people stopped and listened to him over the course of that 45 minutes. One of them was a three-year-old boy, okay? And out of those seven that stopped, only one of them actually recognized who he was, now, I want you to imagine that you were one of the other six that stopped. You didn't know who he was. And you went up to Joshua Bell, and you said, man, you are incredible, right? Like, you're maybe the best violinist I've ever heard. Like, I, I know you're just playing in the subways today, but you're going to make it someday. Like, you, you, I think you could become something. Just keep pressing on. Like, keep, keep playing. Keep developing your skill. If you said that to Joshua Bell, how would that come across? Well, you would be like extremely complimenting him, right? I mean, you'd be complimenting Joshua Bell. You were just praising him for how great of a violinist he is, but you had sorely missed the mark. Right? You complimented him, but you had fallen very short, right? right? You didn't recognize not only who this person was, but how great they were, right? This is who the crowd says Jesus is. They're complimenting him, but they're completely missing it, right? So who do you say Jesus is? That's his big question in verse 20. Look at what it says, but, so contrast, who do you say that I am? I'm asking you, you who've been with me, who've followed me, who do you say that I am this morning? Peter answers as a sort of like representative figure of the entire disciples, and, and he says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Right? What does the Christ mean? Well, it's not, um, as Jordan pointed out to me this week, it's not Jesus' last name. Uh, it, it's a term used for a reference to the Messiah. It means the king, the anointed one, right? The savior king that was promised to come into the world and, and rescue God's people from their greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. So he's recognized here as the long-promised savior that has been foretold about and that people have hoped for since the beginning of the Old Testament. When Adam and Eve sinned, and fell in the garden. In short, Peter says, you're the one that we've been waiting for all these generations. You're the one we've been hoping for all these years. Right? The disciples are seeing his true identity, and what they are seeing is, is much, much greater than the ideas represented in the crowd. This question, who is Jesus, is so relevant for us today. I mean, who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? I mean, if we, if we polled that, we'd get different answers. We wouldn't get, maybe he's John the Baptist and Elijah. We wouldn't get that today if you go to the streets of Gresham, right? But you might get, he's a, he's a really good man. Right? He, was, he was a moral example. He's a great teacher. He started in, in a profound religious movement that spans the globe, right? And, and people would say these things about Jesus as compliments, wouldn't they? Although these things are true, he is so much more. They are so insufficient. He's so much more. Do you recognize him? He's the king. He's the savior. He's the one. If you aren't a Christian, I would love for you to consider that question, who is Jesus? 
That's the most important question you could ever consider in your entire life. Who is he? And even still, this is the most important question even for any of you this morning who are believers. It's still the most important question. And let me just acknowledge that I imagine many of you hear that today or you're watching at home and you're like, I could rattle off all, who is Jesus? I've aced this test my whole life, right? I mean, he's, he's the ancient of days. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the Savior of the world, the King of creation, right? But let me ask you, what does that really mean for your life? What does that mean? Are you still searching for the one this morning? Maybe the one really is that spouse or something. Maybe it is the kid. Maybe it is a political figure for you. Do you think you're the one? Right? Are you the one you've been waiting for? No, Peter says the search is off. We see the identity of Jesus, and the next we see the mission of Jesus and how that has implications for our lives. Look at verse 21. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So verse 21, we see Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one that he is the Messiah. Why? I mean, isn't that the good news that everyone's been waiting for? Well, not necessarily. Had Jesus been widely hailed as the Messiah, people would have understood it as a political or, or military claim. They would have completely missed what Jesus was revealing about himself. And in verse 22, you look there, he explains what the Messiah will do, what it means that he is the Messiah, and he calls himself the Son of Man, which is not Jesus saying, I'm human, which he is, he is fully human, but this is him hearkening back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, actually, where we see a son of man in the book of Daniel that has divine power, and he uses this term then, Jesus is using this term, son of man, because the term Messiah was so loaded in this culture. Because what does he say? Verse 22, I must suffer. I must suffer. He must be killed. He must be rejected. He's going to die, and he's going to be raised. He's trying to give the disciples the correct picture of who he is. Jesus says he must do these things. These were at the core of Jesus' mission. Jesus wasn't going to die as a sort of plot that he got wrapped up in, you know, by accident or something. No, this was necessary, right? This was, this was the plan. Because of the fallenness of this world and because of the grace of our God, this is the plan. And it's been the plan all along. And so Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the king, I am the Messiah, but, but I'm much different than the king you expected. Because you were expecting a king who conquers like other kings, right? But, but I'm a king that will willingly be crushed. Right? You were expecting a king that has victory parades, right? but I will be rejected and I'm going to suffer and die. Right? You were expecting a king that overcomes with the sword, but I'm going to gladly surrender myself unto death. You were expecting a king that would quickly establish a throne, but guys, I'm headed to a cross. 
right? For the Jews, the Messiah's suffering was a fairly new concept. Yes, we have it now as a backdrop. We see clearly Isaiah 53 pointing to the Messiah that He would suffer, that He would die, that He'd be crushed for sins, but many did not make that connection yet. Yes, they had Psalm 118 that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, but they're not making the connections to the Messiah here. But this is why Jesus came, that through His suffering, death, and resurrection, that He was going to bring redemption and transformation. He's the King who willingly came and died, and you guys, that is good news. That is the good news. So, so Jesus reframes all of our understandings of what a king is and what a king does. He doesn't come to overthrow by wiping out and rebelling. He overthrows by giving away his life unto death. So the disciples say, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, I am. Let me sharpen that understanding. Right? This is what I'm going to do. And this then provides the backdrop for what he says next in verse 23. Look there, what does he say? Jesus immediately follows his announcement of his cross with a reference to another cross, right? This one is to be carried by all of his followers. There is, of course, a vast difference because their cross wasn't as literal as his and their suffering would not be atoning like his. But Jesus backs up here in verse 23 and he says to all, meaning the crowd, if anybody wants to follow me, I'm not just going to give you quick miraculous food all the time to fill your bellies. If anybody wants to follow me, you must deny yourself. Die to yourself daily, and then follow me. I love Charles Spurgeon says, do you expect to be crowned with gold where he was crowned with thorns? Do you expect to be crowned with gold where Jesus was crowned with thorns? Guys, if we follow Jesus, we must realize that what's amazing here is He's never calling you to do anything that He hasn't already done. He's paving the way. And what He's done is beyond what you would ever be called to do. So He doesn't say, die to yourself, but I'm going to hold tight. And even when He goes into death, His death accomplishes what your dying would never accomplish could never accomplish. See, the follower of Jesus must deny himself. That doesn't mean you just deny your sins. You should definitely do that. Right, we're just talking about denying yourself, meaning you are not self-centered. Right? There is nothing self-indulgent about being a Christian. Nothing at all, actually. This is Luke's first use of the word cross in his whole gospel, and it comes with a striking effect because, you see, no one ever planned to take up a cross it wasn't on the to-do list for the day, right? This was something that you would avoid at all costs. So, to say this to His disciples, to bring this up for the first time, this is striking stuff. I mean, the disciples had probably seen a man do this. They'd probably seen someone take up their cross. And whenever they saw somebody in a village taking up a cross with a little band of Roman soldiers, they knew that was a one-way journey, that that person was never going to come back. Right? Taking up a cross meant the utmost in self-denial. Now, we also have to remember the disciples had not seen Jesus go to the cross yet. Right? So, this is their paradigm. There was nothing positive about this in their minds. There was nothing to be embraced about this. This was horrific in their minds. But here is their teacher, the Messiah, saying, take up a cross. 
take up a cross. Deny yourself. Right? Jesus' followers die daily as a way of life, and Luke tells us that this is not something that can be finished. It's not something that you do, and you're like, I did that yesterday. Glad that's over, right? It's done daily. This is how Jesus says people will follow me. It's not an option. It's the option. Uh, the Puritan Matthew Henry says self-denial is the first lesson in Christ's school. John Calvin says self-denial is the sum of the Christian life. And I think often Christians in America, we think of this verse, and we, we kind of apply it in different ways. We say things like, well, my cross to bear is my bad back, you know? Or my cross to bear is my coworker or my boss that I hate. You know, my cross to bear is an in-law or something. Obviously not your in-laws, whatever, but you know. Right? It's, it's COVID. It's what, you know what I mean? Like, this, these are our crosses to bear, but that's not what Jesus is talking about, not this cross. This isn't talking about difficulties and burdens. It's talking about you and me dying so that we can truly start living. I mean, do you see how much this changes things, you guys? Think about this. We can think of it in terms of a, a negative sense, but there, there's so much life here. Think about this. If I'm dead to myself, but I'm still breathing today. I'm pretty free, actually, aren't I? I'm pretty free. I'm free from having to get my own way, right? I'm free from my pride. I'm free from being offended. I'm freed from trying to control my reputation. I'm free from my bitterness. I'm free from complaining. Because how can a dead person do any of those things? I mean, how? It's impossible, isn't it? Right? But see, we don't just die to ourselves and stay dead. We live. We live for Jesus. That's why he says, deny, die, and what? Follow. That's saying, but now live. Live. Right? Who is this for? This is not just for super Christians, you guys. This is not for exceptional people. You're like, man, I could never be like that. No, this is for every Christian. This is Christianity 101. And Jesus even continues, and he builds upon this in a really logical way in verse 24 and 25, and he talks about losing and saving your life. Jesus says people who gain the whole world could still lose, their, lose themselves. Or you could gain the entire world. Imagine, basically, this is saying, you, imagine if you got to live the life that you wanted, that you dreamt up on paper, that was your life, and you got to the end of it all. You would lose it all. That's not logical right? So, what are you trying to save this morning? What are you trying to gain this morning that you could lose? Jesus says, if you could gain the whole world, that's not enough. There's another way. The one who loses his life will save his life and find it. Jesus, uh, Jim Elliott once said famously, he is no fool what gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He lived that out. See, Jesus has a different sort of life for us. It's a profoundly different way of living. And then he says in verse 26, whoever's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. These are haunting words to be true, right? I mean, what does shame have to do with any of that? Why would we be ashamed of Jesus, and why would Jesus be ashamed of you? Right? It was everything to do with saving and losing. This statement alone by Jesus reveals that what the opposite of denying ourselves is is saving our lives, trying to save things. It's, it's self-preservation, isn't it? It's protecting and promoting ourselves. It's maintaining image. 
If I'm trying to gain, if I'm trying to save, it's about me. If I give that up, well, that's denying. So it makes complete sense, Jesus' words here. And then in verse 27, we see these, these interesting words that some of them will, before they die, will see a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Uh, we aren't certain what Jesus is referring to here. It could be a reference to the transfiguration. It could be a reference to his death and resurrection. It could be referring to the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. Right, but what we do know is that whatever they would see has been seen. And we do know that whatever has been seen is what we can see to this day. So, so let me just ask you when, you, when you consider this section, you consider how Jesus the Messiah has actually lived, given up his life unto death, and then he calls you to lose yours. I'm just curious, what, what does following Jesus actually look like in your life today? Does it, does it look like this? Does it look like this? Is this ignored by you or, or redefined, kind of like the post-truth world idea? Or is this beautiful to you? Is this compelling to you? And I think of um, just a simple, uh, the other day, it was, it was probably months ago now, obviously, but uh, we were on a walk with our family and my little daughter, Isla, over there, uh, goes over and picks up this weed, has like little petals on it. Justin might say it's a flower, but it's, it was a weed. And um, she holds this thing up and she said, Daddy, look, it's a flower. And, you know, being a dad, I'm like, well, that's a weed. But I look at it and I just said, oh, that's beautiful. You know, it's beautiful. You found a flower. And she's carrying it around so proud, holding it out, telling everybody that it's this flower, right? But we all know that's a, that's a weed, right? You, you can call it what you want, but it, it's a weed, even though it's, it's cute that she does this kind of thing. I wonder how many of us hold out what we think it looks like to follow Jesus. We're saying this is what it looks like. It's a, it's a flower. But we're trying to save our lives. We're trying to gain the whole world. We're not willing to die to ourselves. We're not denying anything about ourselves. We're saying, look, it's a flower. And I think the problem is Jesus says on that last day when he comes in his glory, he's not going to say, oh, cute. He's going to say, no, that's a, that's a weed. That's not it. But I was reminded this week of another story that I would say is the flower. A hundred years ago, a group of brave young Christians became known as one-way missionaries. Right? They were called out for two reasons. They were called out for two reasons. They, they one, bought one-way tickets to the mission field. And number two, they packed their belongings in a coffin. It's pretty intense, right? One of those people was named A.W. Milne, who was one of those brave souls, and he had uh, he heard about a tribe on the islands of the New Hebrides, a tribe filled with headhunters and cannibals who had been martyred, had martyred just about every missionary that had ever set foot on their soil. And he says he did not fear going to them, even though everybody else had died. You want to know why he didn't fear going? He says, because I had already died to myself. He, his coffin was literally already packed. Right? And he lived there for 35 years telling about the gospel, and he loved and served these people. And when he died, he was buried by the people of that tribe in the most honored place in their village. And he had this little epitaph on his gravestone that said, quote, when he came, there was no light, and when he left, there was no darkness. That's a flower. I'm just curious, how do you get to that place where this guy is? I mean, how do, you, how do you get to that spot? 
You're, you're packing a coffin. Right? How do you not just look at the cost and moan, but you receive it with joy? Well, it starts by beholding the glory of Jesus, and that's where this passage winds up. All right, look at verse 28. About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and James and John. These are the three that he took up with him to raise Jairus' daughter. And he went up on the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, I love this, they just wake up, and they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. As he was saying these things, a cloud came, overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Uh, one commentator said about the transfiguration that it's, it's the one story in the Bible that he would like to pass over in silence. I kind of feel that way here. This is the high point of Jesus' ministry, and it's a turning point. It's the point where we get this glimpse of Jesus' full glory. Because in verse 29, what do you see? You see Jesus' face altered, and his clothing becomes dazzling white. I mean, these are, these are times when people are like, what is that? And you're like, I don't know, it's kind of like this. Like his clothing was dazzling white. You know, his face was altered. You know, like it's this incredible moment, but it wasn't that Jesus was changing in nature. Right? But for a moment, his true nature shines forth. Jesus isn't going to Jesus 2.0 here. We're, we're just seeing who Jesus really is. And we also see Moses and Elijah in verse 30. They're two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, these are, these are the greatest people in the room, right? And Jesus is chatting with them. I wonder what they're talking about. Well, we actually know. Did, do you remember what happened in both Moses and Elijah's life? They met with God on a mountain, didn't they? I mean, so we should be thinking about these things. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 meets with God on a mountain and God speaks to him. This, the same Moses here, he went up onto a mountain, and we're told in the Exodus account of Exodus 24 that uh, God's descended on that Mount Sinai in the form of a cloud, right? So, no wonder in verse 34 here you see, quote, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. This is, is the presence of God. We were to be thinking of these kinds of things. And then furthermore, Moses in Exodus 34, you read that when he comes down from that same mountain with meeting with God on the mountain, his face was altered. So much so that we are told that it was so radiant that he had to wear a veil for the sake of the people. So no wonder in verse 31, Luke says that Jesus appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible there, you'll notice that this word departure is the literal word in Greek for exodus. 
This is not a mistake. Right? This, this is all wanting you to think of Moses, the Exodus, right? So these are the greatest people in Scripture. They're talking about what Jesus is going to do. Jesus isn't talking to Moses and Elijah about their greatest hits, right? They're talking to Jesus about what he's going to accomplish, it says, in Jerusalem when he has his exodus, right? So, so the exodus in the exodus account had actually delivered Israel from their bondage and slavery, but Jesus's exodus would deliver his people from a far worse bondage. So, Jesus is about to have an exodus. Jesus, the ultimate Moses, is about to bring the true exodus, those who are in bondage to their sin, to Satan, to death. So, through his death, we learn here that he is going to deliver people who are in that bondage to new life with him forever. Right? Not into an earthly promised land, like in the Exodus account, but into the new heavens and the new earth, the ultimate promised land. So, so this shows that this is God's plan all along, right? It's, it's not that Jesus is God's different plan, that Moses and Elijah didn't work out, so here's, here's Jesus now on the scene. No, this is showing us that Jesus is God's plan all along, and so Peter does what we would do. Right? In his amazement, he starts talking about things that Luke says in verse 33. He doesn't know what he's talking about, which is like all of us, right? Peter wants to make three tents, apparently. One for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. We don't know exactly why, but we do know at minimum that tents and tabernacles were representations of the presence of God. So we imagine this is what he must be thinking. Hey, let's enjoy this, right? We got the three musketeers here on the mountain, or do we? Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I love how Stephen Charnock says, and though God could create millions of worlds for us, he cannot give a greater son to us. Although God could create millions of worlds for you, He could not give you a greater son. And in verse 36, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. He's alone. Do you see that this is telling Peter and what this is telling you? Right? Jesus isn't one of the three musketeers. Right? He's the one. He's the only one. J.C. Ryle on this passage is the voice told Peter that no matter how great Moses and Elijah might be, the person who stood in front of them was much greater. They were but servants, he was the king's son. They were but stars, he was the son. They were but witnesses, he was the truth. See, God the Father affirms Jesus' identity, but notice what he says to his disciples. He says, listen to him. I don't know about you, but if I were there, I think the response would be like, of course, right? I mean, is, do you see the guy's face? Like, I mean, do you see what's happening here? Of course, we're going to listen to him. But we should listen to him. Right? Listen to him about what? Well, in, in everything. Right? In everything. But at minimum, it's to trust him in what he's saying here. It's, it's to trust him that, that they would find their way with Jesus. That what Jesus is calling them to in the verses right before this is something they should listen to and follow. Right? And so I think we get to these portions of Scripture and we see Jesus' glory, and if the response is listen to Him, then we must be saying this morning, well, who are you listening to? Who is it that you're listening to? 
what are you listening to? We're listening to a lot of things. We're all listening to someone or something this morning. You hop into your car in the mornings, you're listening to something, I imagine. You're hanging out with people, you're listening to voices, I imagine. You're reading things, you're listening. What are you listening to? And the most important question is, is your listening making you more like Jesus? Is what you're listening to making you more like Jesus? How, how can you know if you're becoming more like Jesus? Well, you're losing your life. You're not trying to save it, right? How can you know if you're becoming more like Jesus? You're denying yourself, not defending yourself. How can you know if you're becoming more like Jesus? You're giving your life away. You're truly free, right? I was reminded this week again of the story that Brother Andrew tells in his book, The Calling. If you're unfamiliar with Brother Andrew, he smuggled Bibles into the Soviet Union and China, and on one event, he was trying to smuggle one million Bibles into China, which was completely illegal. One million Bibles. Think about that. One million Bibles. And he actually sent somebody ahead, one of his team members named Joseph, uh, to meet with these five house church leaders in China so that they understood the risk and really the gravity, the, the, how much work this would take in order to do. And so this guy, Joseph, shows up to meet with these five house church leaders in China. He has this really long list of questions. And the story goes, as he writes, Joseph asks them, do you know how much space one million Bibles takes up? These five Chinese house church leaders say, we have already prepared storage places. Joseph said, okay, do you know what could happen to you if you were caught with even a portion of these Bibles? These five people responded, Joseph all five of us have been in prison for the Lord. All together, we've spent 72 years in jail for Jesus. We are willing to die if that means that a million brothers or sisters can have a copy of God's Word. With tears in his eyes, Joseph folded up his long list of questions and just put it away. I don't need to ask anymore. Oh, they get it. 72 years in jail? I'm willing to die. I mean, they're living out what Jesus is saying here. This isn't Christianity 101, though, is it? Or it is. It's not 301. How do you get there, you guys? Well, you see who Jesus is, and you see that He's worth it. That He's the one that you've been waiting for. We should follow Him and listen to Him and realize that it'll cost you, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And just see, we see this morning what the crowd says about Jesus. We see what the disciples say about Jesus. We see what Jesus says about Jesus. We see what the Father says about Jesus. So we end with kind of just saying, who do you say Jesus is? We have a lot of testimony here, but who do you say He is? Have you beheld His glory? He's not one among many. He's the one. He's the one you've been waiting for. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded of the old hymn this morning, just turn our eyes upon you. Look full in your wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, I pray that we do that this morning, Lord Jesus, that we would behold you for who you are, that we wouldn't 
trying to redefine you into who we want you to be. But we would see your greatness, we would see your suffering, and we would gladly and joyfully follow suit. Why do you pray that this would be what we would be known as? Or that we would be known as people who do die to ourselves, who do deny ourselves, and who follow you? Lord, I pray that we would see this in our lives, that you would produce that in our lives and in our church. And Lord, that your gospel would then spread through us, all to East County and all over this world. We love you, Lord, and we are so thankful for who you are, for the glimpses of you that we get to see this morning. And we, we pray now that we would respond to you with lives that are deserving of who you are. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.